This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Everyone's talking about mental health and how to mind yourself. But what if it's not us? What if modern society is making us sick and we need to change the world, not medicate and meditate ourselves into passivity? And what about gender? Are women being prescribed anti-anxiety and antidepressants so we can cope with the patriarchy? And is the CBT craze a quick fix that governments love because it's cheap? The politics of depression. That's our talking point this morning. And in studio with me, Dr. Mary Murray is a clinical psychologist. Coleman Nochter is a child psychotherapist in St. Patrick's. Leslie Shoemaker is a counselling psychologist. And first, earlier I spoke to Oliver James, the psychologist and best-selling author of Britain on the Couch, Affluenza and Contented Dementia. And I began by asking him what he means when he says that we live in a low serotonin society. Well, the idea there was that uh, we... Uh, you know, despite being richer compared with 1950, we seem to have higher levels of the commonest emotional problems like anxiety and depression. And serotonin is associated with uh, depression and low levels of serotonin uh, particularly. So my idea was that the society we were in was depressing and consequently we had lower levels of serotonin. So when maybe our parents and grandparents' generation would have had a stoic, just get on with it attitude, is there something, are you saying, that's chemical about the fact that we're not so good at that stoicism or are we just victims of a different kind of society that we live in compared to them? Different kind of society. So there are really two shifts that have happened since the Second World War. There's what happened between 1950 and roughly the arrival of Mrs. Thatcher in the UK. Uh, which was a period in which uh, individualism greatly increased and collectivism reduced. So individualism is where you define yourself through your education and your career, um, whereas in the collectivist society, which of course exists throughout much of the rest of the world today, uh, your identity is conferred upon you by your family background, uh, your position in the family, your gender, your social class. Now, in the collectivist society, you don't uh, achieve your identity and, and sort of have an, an adolescence and break away from your parents. You, your ambition is actually to be like your parents. You know, the main cause of emotional problems or vulnerability is our early care, the early years. Mm. People whose early years had put, made them vulnerable when placed in this situation of being able to choose, of being able to supposedly be whoever they wanted to be, actually uh, we're at much more risk of, 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 of becoming very distressed. The, the 60s values and culture uh, encouraged everybody to do whatever they wanted. Uh, and, and, of course, people who'd had good, solid early care thought, hmm, well, on the other hand, maybe I can't do whatever I want because I've got, to, you know, I've got to be responsible. And other people who'd had insecure childhoods uh, were more likely to go off the rails. And... There was also, at the same time, the other thing that changed was a massive increase in the amount of social comparison between 1950 and 1980. Uh, advertising took off. Advertising is constantly trying to encourage you to, be, to, 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 not, you know, to want things that you can't have, always be someone other than who you are. And uh, the education system, advertising, a whole lot of changes in the society made everybody compare themselves much more to other people. And that actually is 
one of the characteristics of depressed people is that they're constantly worrying how they're doing compared to other people. What about the huge rise in the use of SSRIs? Where has that come from? Uh, sort of a last-to-class solution, like drugs, which actually don't work for the most part. You know, uh, 75% of the effect of an antidepressant is a placebo effect. It's, it's the belief that it will have an effect. Only about a, a quarter of the effect is actually on the effects of level of, of serotonin. Yeah, but in Britain um, on the Couch, you were quite positive, I thought, about SSRIs and well, how beneficial SSRIs they were. do have a place in that if you're, you know, and I, I wouldn't want any listener who's hearing this to, to, and taking SSRIs to, to feel upset about this. I think if you feel that an antidepressant is having an effect on you, then good for you. Um, but don't look upon it as a cure and don't imagine you're going to have to take them for the rest of your life. Antidepressants could play a role, but what, what we all need is therapy which uh, explores what went wrong in your childhood, uh, preferably also is make, you know, acknowledges that social processes are important, such as, for example, there are an enormous number now of women in their 30s and 40s who are single and can't find any men. And if they're university educated, that's not surprising because there are four women for every uh, three men coming out of university. <laughs> so there's a, actually a, a radical shortage of men. And you know, if I, I have clients who are in that category of women, um, and you know, I, I recognise fully that the social process that's, that's maybe depressing them, but also their childhoods will have come into it. And what therapy needs to do is explore. To get to the bottom of what really happened in your childhood, on top of that, it needs to be you know more than once a week, and and they need to form a strong bond with the therapist. So I gather you're not too hot on the current fashion for CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy. I, I think it's a disgrace the way that uh, CBT has been portrayed as effective. It maybe reduces the symptoms of anxiety and depression in about 40% of cases. I don't believe it's actually as high as that. What has been proven is that people who have had CBT two years later are no, you know, if they've had it for anxiety or depression, are no uh, more likely to, to, to be cured than people who've had no CBT at all. Whereas the kind of therapy I was just describing that goes into your childhood and that forms a strong bond with the, with the therapist has been proven to have long-term effects. The other big craze at the moment is for mindfulness. Yes. Um, what's your view on that? I mean, we've known for, for decades, actually, that yoga and meditation are good for your mental well-being. You have to incorporate it as part of your routine as, as much a thing like brushing your teeth. Um, and it does help. Of course it does. But the idea that it can cure depression or anxiety is nonsense. Um, and just going back to society and women, um, I'm always very struck by that book, The Women's Room by Marlon French. I don't know if you've ever read it. Yeah. And it's Yeah, these educated American women stuck then in these stifling marriages in the suburban world. Yeah. And the one of the women who was the most intelligent of them had a nervous breakdown and she bitterly said that um, they gave the women Valium and the blacks heroin and that was how they <laughs> kept them down, you know? Yeah. And um, I think you said 
that in Britain on the couch that women are over are prescribed medication in far greater multiples than men are. That's right. You know, and do you think is that a consequence of it's something we often talk about on this program, the unintended consequences of feminism and how it just all got I a bit twisted? We, you know, I think the kind of feminism that we got as a result of the 1960s was absolutely disastrous uh, compared with Scandinavian feminism. Our kind of feminism is what I call men in skirts feminism, in which they become aggressive, competitive, they, they develop men's bad habits, smoking, drinking too much, uh, maybe taking drugs. Yeah, and they call it lad, ladettes, ladette culture. Ladettes, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't get that in Scandinavia. In Scandinavia, the whole idea there was the feminism that I'm old enough to remember in, in the 1970s, which was all about men's groups and men changing, men becoming more like women, not women becoming more like men. And that was Oliver James, psychologist and author of many books, including Britain on the Couch, Affluenza and Contented Dementia. So, Mary Murray, you know, he's making interesting comments there about the trend of depression and by extension suicide in modern society. What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, he's making some very interesting points. I think we always have to look at the association between alcohol and suicide. Um, And that was something that we became deeply concerned about in the 90s. We were drinking more um, and there was that availability. And we still have not tackled availability. Mm -hmm. um, And that's a problem. Um, During the recession, I mean, this idea that in a time of recession, we're all in it together, we're all working together and the big benefits of that, that really wasn't emerging uh, statistically. And while, you know, stats as we know, the lies, damn lies and statistics, if we look at the age group that were killing themselves, it was all those men, those middle-aged men whose identity centred around their job. Um, And that was suddenly, they lost it overnight. So, to be at that age and stage, to have everything you've worked for, everything you've created, all your belief in yourself, all your status, who you are, what you are, what you own, to have that taken away from you. And then we really did have a spike uh, during that time. And that shift to the older person from the young person was very significant. Um, but Coleman Nocter, um, Brendan Walsh from UCD has done a paper on this, pointing out that the big rise in suicide in Ireland, well recorded, we should probably always acknowledge, was during the 1990s as the economy improved and you had big availability of um, alcohol and that overall the trend has reduced. So the last couple of years, the suicide rate overall has been much lower than it was, say, in 2001. Yeah, and, and I think some of that comes down to people being more aware to respond to kind of early signs of suicidality. Um, I mean, you have organisations like Pieta House and these things that have come up since that time. Um, perhaps there is more of an awareness of that. But counter to that, I mean, I, I think we need to think about we've never had more awareness and more services, but we've also never had more mentally unwell or people struggling with their mental health than ever before as well. And we, I think it's it's very hard to, well, it's a, it's a problem in terms of thinking as mental health as one thing. So suicide relates to the general mental health of a nation. Um, I don't think it necessarily fits that. And, and something that, like the idea of a low serotonin society, the serotonin situation suggests a depressive illness um, and they're one stat. But 
in general, you can have an unhappy society, which isn't necessarily categorized as a mental illness or a mentally unhealthiness, but just perhaps people struggling with adjustments. And I think one of the things I would say that Oliver James is right is about a social comparison society. I think we have become incredibly embroiled in the comparative with what is happiness and what we're sold as happiness and our expectations of what happiness is. And a, a very simple formula for happiness, and this is not depression, this is just general our, our general sense of ourselves, is expectation minus reality equals happiness. So if your expectations are really high and your reality is really low, then you're going to be unhappy. Whereas if your expectations are low and your uh, reality is higher than that, you're going to be a little bit higher. And for me, I think culturally, we're setting ourselves up for these high expectations and increasing expectations. And our reality isn't in keeping with that. And I know it's, I mean, it's kind of fickle to say, you know, your life can get an awful lot better if you just drop your standards. But from the point of view, there is something about our just our, our unhappiness within our culture that even despite many advances in services and awareness, we do seem to be struggling more. And whether that's a decrease in our resilience or our coping or whether it is a loss of community that has come from, you know, a cultural or shift. Or is it political? Is this the triumph of the neoliberal conspiracy um, making the people unhappy and saying, well, look, take an SSRI and do some mindfulness and you'll feel much better about the fact I, I, that you've I, no job security? I would suggest that if that were the case, then there's a far more organised system in place than I would imagine that, that I see in front of me in terms of, of thinking that through. No, I don't think it's that. I think, um, I, I think there's an agenda around how do we understand happiness? How do we understand what it is to be mentally healthy? And, you know, Freud said the most we can hope for is the misery of everyday life. And in some respects, he was pillared for saying that. But there is a truth in that. Happiness is, is a very momentary... And if you think about our life, the amount of percentage of time we spend being happy is probably quite low. A lot, most of it is, 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 is just content or disgruntled, whatever you might be. But I think there is a kind of a sense of that we need to just not bulk mental health and mental illness into one description and match it to something like a suicide rate. I think it's a far more complex dynamic than that. On the expectations, Leslie, that we had a very elderly neighbour who was dead before I was even born, but she was famous for keening by the fire in her oh shawl. God. We were brought into this world for pain and suffering a store, pain and suffering. And we often quote her, you know, if things are going wrong. And is that what we're talking about, expectations? Very much know? so. And, and just to say, mention something that Coleman hasn't, I think it's social media, which is his expertise, has really played a huge role around this concept of happiness. Because like when I was a kid, I had the kids in my neighborhood. We'd get on our bikes, we'd spend the day together, we were all the same, we'd be in and out of each other's houses. That was my reality. Now, when I look at Facebook and I look at my friends who now live all over the world, there's very different realities. Now, I'm very lucky. We're pretty inactive in our Facebook page. We're pretty boring. Most of the time, it's jokes and stupid pictures. But the research around Facebook is quite interesting in saying that people who actively engage, you know, the one-up membership, keeping up with the Joneses, they're miserable. There's depression. And that is the problem is we're all leading this false reality. And, and, and I think the program Mad Men really helped show that facade behind advertising, not just the interesting lives they had, and, and what advertising does. And I think there's been a bit of a backlash, you know, Dove, I love their campaign using regular women. You know, there was a, a beautiful young woman with Down syndrome who's now a model. Like we're starting to embrace normality, thank God. 
But these are baby steps. These are early steps. But expectations are essential, which brings us into CBT, by the way. Yes. Now, I, actually, I'll come back to CBT in one minute. OK, so hold that thought. But I want to ask Mary Murray then about this idea between us being unhappy because yes. we live in a sick society and being depressed. And what is the solution to that? And let's talk about medication for a minute and the role of SSRIs. What do you think the role of an SSRI, something like Prozac, is in a society like ours where this unhappiness slash depression is rampant? I'm, I'm just thinking of you saying, and what is the solution to that? If, in two if, minutes, if, please. In, 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 in two minutes. But I, I think actually as we're talking, we're looking at some of those solutions Because as long as we set these ideals, as long as we have this comparative thing, as long as we're needy because we're told we're lesser if we don't have, you know, as long as we've ideals of perfection held up, and not only now do we have those ideals held up, but we have to communicate them to the world. So I have to make sure that you know I'm perfect and what I'm doing and where I'm going. So that is the the context. So if we begin to look at you know, SSRIs and and the role that they play. Look, we've had this controversy going on for such a long time. Is it medication? Is it therapy? Which do we need and why do we need it? Now, you know, I was listening to you saying there about, well, do the politicians just want to either dope us or make us mindlessness, you know, which is it? Because it is the conditions in which we live that make us unhappy. And there is an element of, not, not to the, some political conspiracy, but there is no doubt that the context in which we live make us either very often happy or unhappy, as you've pointed out, uh, both of you. And uh, we know that, for example, if you've got a sense of community, all the resilience factors, what are they about? They're about realistic expectations. They're about uh, uh, people around you who care and support you. They're about having a sense of community. And they're about, you know, learning how to cope with adversity. The mourning and weeping in this valley of tears (laughs) is my response to your neighbour. But if you can't cope. If you can't can't cope. cope. I I absolutely believe that there is a role for medication. I have always believed that. It is a role where, and again, depending on what the the severity, uh, the onset, the severity, the way that the depression is showing itself, the risk factors, the suicidal intent, whether or not there's self-harm, whether or not there is, you know, previous episodes that have brought somebody to the brink of death. All of these things are factors. And I think we have good doctors good psychiatrists making good prescriptions for people who need them. Mm. And I think it's very dangerous to have anything suggest that we do not need this medication at all. We need it for the real depression. And Coleman, I have found in the general population massive negativity about medication. People say, oh, don't take the meds. Whatever you do, don't take the meds. There's this idea that you won't be you anymore or you'll just be some drugged zombie. It's really negative. It shocks me sometimes. Yeah, and again, I think it's pigeonholing a, a whole series of spectrum of medications into one group so all psychiatric meds are this will have this effect and I would be the first to you know discuss the, the failings of psychiatry over the years we have made many mistakes um, but it doesn't mean that they, we've gotten everything wrong in some respects the, I think the SSRI 
a debate is is because I think there's a reality that sometimes, in my case, for children and families, there's always going to be a hesitancy about putting a, a child on a medication. So we have this discussion uh, through thorough assessment and really trying to think out what is the best option for for this child. But there may be GPs out there who are under immense pressure to find a, a solution to a family who comes with a child who's who's perhaps been bullied or has a life experience that's making them feel really low and sad. And you feel for the kind of hapless GP who knows that there's a year-long waiting list for any specialist service, knows this family may not have the means to get that privately. And so they see this expectant family and go, well, maybe we'll try some medicines mm. and see if that works. So you're giving a child who has a life experience that's making them feel the way they are on a medicine. And that's not a, the right use for that medication. That child needs some support and help, etc. But then you see other cases where perhaps there's a, a hesitancy about putting a child on medication and they'll come to us in our service having had 18 months of not sleeping, oh. poor concentration, yeah. absolute the biological features of depression making this child unable to function who has who could have been treated in that time and been considerably better and sometimes children come for therapy and their depression is that extensive that they actually wouldn't be able to engage in therapy because if you were kind of giving them things to do or work on over that time if they can't get out of bed in the morning that you're going to actually repeat that feeling of failing and um, so oftentimes it might be like we maybe need some medication to help your biological uh, capacity to engage in therapy Um, and and again it's the spectrum of difficulty you don't give somebody an SSRI because they're adjusting to something and they're mildly unhappy and you don't give it because there's no other service available you give it because there's a clinical need that indicates that and that you provide the other supports as well so the therapy and the and the, the the medicine have to go together Leslie what does an SSRI do you know, if you're depressed and you start taking Prozac, what happens? That's the million-dollar question. When I was home a few years ago in the States, they had realized the low serotonin theory was wrong. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was a national um, media campaign to educate the public, saying, look, your doctor and your GP, in, sorry, your psychiatrist can no longer describe as lowered serotonin levels. And I don't know where it stands at this moment because I don't really follow the biology aspect of it. But the bottom line is, like I know with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, SSRIs are the medication of um, choice for that. We don't know why it works. And for me as a psychologist, I don't care. What I know is when my clients come in, when through, not with me because that's not my area, a discussion with their psychiatrist or their GP, and it is decided that medication is a really good option for them, whether it be for six months or a year, um, then that's what they do. And it's because it's going to alleviate the symptoms of whatever it is that's going on. Like I find I've had clients with really crippling depression. They come in or therapy is going nowhere. We're, we're in the mud. And when they go on medication, suddenly they come in, there's a bounce in their, their step. They even look different in some cases. And suddenly they're making connections like, oh, my God, I never thought of that. This is something I observed. Oh, that book chapter you gave me to read, that really makes sense. And they start linking information together. And therefore, therapy becomes deeper. It becomes more thorough. And as a result, they get a lot more out of it. Um, but, Mary, what do people say when they're on it? Do they say, yes, this is me now feeling better? Or do they feel this is a drug contriving to make me feel better, but really underneath nothing has changed? What do they say to you? Well, I mean, there's such a range. Mm. I mean, when we're talking, we're talking about across such a broad spectrum. But when we look at those biological features of depression and how crippling, immobilising, 
you know, there is no energy, there is almost no heartbeat, then of course the person who receives the appropriate prescription and responds to that, they are going to say, this, this is wonderful. Now, after a period, people may wonder, do I need this? You know, maybe they've then had the opportunity, as Leslie was saying, once you are able then to engage in, in therapy of whatever kind, because, I mean, look at all the therapies, human integrative, uh, systemic, CBT, um, uh, narrative, um, solution-focused therapy. You know, I mean, I'm just thinking of, of, about this great range. What they all do is they all tap into and talk and look at the contextual factors. How did this come about? How are you feeling? Was there a time when you were happy? How are you feeling now? What are your relationships? What are your future plans? Have you something to look forward to? I hope is the one, the one big factor. So I suppose to answer your question, in some way what we are seeing is people really appreciate it when it takes them out of misery. They're concerned about it if they feel, if they're experiencing side effects that are significant. They, their families often wonder, are they going to be on this for life? You know, what's the meaning of this? And then there is a looking at, is this required? Can it be reduced? What kind and of most uh, other often interventions? Can Yes, I mean, there are two schools of thought. There are those who say that after a major depression, people should certainly be on medication for a sufficient length oh, of well, time. God, I should be on medication for the rest of my life. I <laughs> no, had no, depression. No, no, I'm, no, no, I'm not saying for the rest <laughs> no, of my life. No, but I'm saying... But no, but there is, there is an idea that certainly people need to be on the medication for a sufficient length of time. That I would agree yeah, with. To, to recover from this and to ensure that then the, how they come off the medication is done in a graduated way. And meanwhile, all the other support systems mm. and contextual factors are being put in place. Okay, I you'd I, agree with that. I have yeah. to take a quick break now. We'll come back with more on the medication and we'll get on to CBT, the government's uh, therapy of choice. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the politics of depression this morning. And in studio with me is Dr. Mary Murray, clinical psychologist, Coleman Nocter, child psychotherapist in St. Patrick's, and Leslie Shoemaker is a counselling psychologist. Coleman, we were talking before the break there about medication and the role that SSRIs play. And you wanted to get yeah, in on I, that. I just think people need to understand that people react to medicines differently. Um, I mean, one antibiotic might work for me, it might not work for you. I remember being an acne infested teenager and there was always Aww. this next thing that was going to work and it cleared up everybody else's but it seemed to be a little slower in my mind but from the point of view of, with any SSRI people will react differently to it and some people who respond by saying I feel like I have a narrower, narrower range of emotion than I had before yeah. and it doesn't feel like me Some people have said um, that uh, they feel incapable of love that while the SSRI might crush negative emotions, it can crush positive ones as well and they feel a kind of disconnection. Yeah, and yeah. some people are, are kind of describe a kind of an emotional numbness that maybe they... they and, and going from a, a period of depression where emotional intensity is so high, yeah. there would be a, a kind of a drop down to that. But I just think for, for listeners, it's about 
it's not saying all these medicines are wonderful and it's not saying all these medicines are awful, but each person will react differently to it. And it's the exact same when it comes to a therapy choice. Yeah. If you are if you have a natural fit for explorative, psychologically minded work, you might much prefer a kind of psychodynamic model. If you're someone who actually just wants symptom reduction and, and actually some prescriptive advice around how to manage my distress, perhaps CBT might work for you. And I, I, but, but I, 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 Unfair description. No, I, I, I apologise. No, <laughs> no, we get on to but, CBT. But, but, no, it is controversial. And I, I, I'm yeah. certainly not in any way dismissing CBT. I, I'm a big fan of it. Um, but I think that what I was trying to kind of illustrate there is there are different ways yeah. in which therapy will work for different people. And, you know, the, the research on, on therapies is that there's far more similarities among therapies than there are differences. Actually, Oliver James was saying uh, one of the most important things with therapy is is that the client and the therapist click and get on with each that, other. All oh, Most yes. people repeat that the relationship is the vehicle for recovery. Yeah. So the mechanism of what is delivered comes secondary to the trust, the space and what can be created within that room and that's what is unique to therapy in terms of and this makes this is the wonder of psychiatry in some respects because it makes it so interesting but it's also the hit and miss nature of it like there's nothing there's no blood test for any of this we can't do an x-ray for this it's a lot of it and people have to realize that a lot of psychiatry is is kind of trying to work something out uh, it's trying to find a solution rather than having a ready-made one and I think there's a kind of a sense that that the ready-made solution within psychiatry and mental health services is something that numbs you or zombies you and, and I don't necessarily think that's true but I think in therapy it is absolutely about the fit of the person and I, I, I've obviously personal therapy has been something I've had to do and I've had to go to a few therapists to find that neat fit um, and maybe even through something like clinical supervision I've, I, I do that as well and, and I might need to shop around to find something that fits mm. and it's it's what can be created in that relationship that makes it significant and I think it, you'll have purists and like when I started talking about CBT there Leslie was yeah. jumping on me I'm and, not a purist though and, but I think there, like, people are, are get so, it's, there's almost a religiousness to your therapy well the Kleinians yeah. I believe are very fundamentalist well, well I think we can all be yeah. a little bit fundamentalist about it <laughs> yeah. but, but like religions but the religions, research I, contradicts it completely but, the yeah. research is mm. very I do. clear it is the relationship all mm. of the research right yeah. back to Yalom yeah. I think that was probably in the 80s yeah. was very clear when they took all the models was that Irving Yalom you were talking yes, about yeah, yeah. yeah. Love's Executioner yeah. and all of that Absolutely. yeah that's yes. brilliant yeah. and it yeah. was very clear and it continues to be because at the end of the day if somebody comes into you and they feel you're interested you're competent you care and you have respect for them and you don't tell them what's wrong with them but you listen to their account then you're on the road now I think, we must get on to CBT sure. we've been pushing it on for That's too okay. long so but Leslie. no I'm agreeing with Mari and, yeah. and, uh, first Coleman of all just explain quite briefly just what CBT is why it's quite different from other kinds of psychodynamic therapy why governments love it and where you think it's appropriate alright well it's not about symptom reduction Coleman sorry <laughs> sorry apologies <laughs> that okay this first and foremost this is the difficulty with any therapy model Unfortunately, with CBT, we get a lot of people out there, pick up a book, they call them cookbooks, and they're like, oh, if I do this technique and I do this technique, great, this is going to help my client. What I personally love about cognitive behavioral therapy, it provides a model. I call it the vehicle. So it gives us a way to look at, say, low self-esteem. My favorite author, I'll be shameless and plugger, Melanie Fennell, Overcoming Low Self-Esteem. And it's the best model of self-esteem I've ever seen. And it starts with 
early experience. And then it goes through, you know, it looks at early experience. It looks at how you view yourself. Then it looks at how you view the world and the rules you set up around that. It looks at trigger situations and what results. And I love that because for the first time, my clients have a way of saying, oh, my God, this is early experience. This, and we, I start with that. Yeah, but the thing about CBT, isn't it, is that, first of all, it's short. Okay, yes. so, that's a myth. So Sorry. they say, so they say, like sixteen weeks or something. That's a myth. Okay, that's that's right. the government agenda. I have yet to have a client. Yeah. You know, here's the problem: people that come to me in my private practice usually have multiple problems. And I remember, um, you know, hearing this from a psychiatrist ages ago to talk I went to. That straightforward single diagnosis is becoming less and less and less. And the CBT of old, I think that that worked, you know, that might have been the model. But I find once I start looking at the background, not just looking at symptom reduction and, you know, looking at their thoughts, looking at their behaviors, looking at how they view themselves, others in the world, you know, we have to dig a bit deeper than that. You know, I'll look at identity, family, all these different things like that. And so... If you want to be a strict purist and do 16 weeks, go for it. I'm not one of those. I go for a more complete So, package. Mary, the philosophy behind CBT is that our thoughts dictate how we feel. And if you change your thoughts, then you can change how you feel. So they work on changing your thoughts. And if you change how you feel, you can change your actions mm. and how you interact yeah. with the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, that's a cognitive model. That's yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So the yes. idea is then it's very practical. Um, it can be focused on a particular thing and, you know, there's a specific outcome that you're looking for. And this is why governments like it, because it's not psychoanalysis that you might have to go to for twice a week for 10 years or something like that to get anywhere. Pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get on to psychoanalysis now at Coleman. Listen, we have so, three models of therapy in this, in this room. So what's yes, your yes. take on this? And, and Oliver James is really down on the CBT. He's thinking this is a cheap fix that governments like because it's short term and he says that a year after someone has done CBT if they're depressed not necessarily now for anxiety or that they either feel the same or worse so what's your yeah, take the, on I the mean, CBT? There's a, there's, a, there's a lot on, on relapse rates and so on mm. Look, my view is that each model holds within it kernels that are absolutely useful for the person who receives or engages in that model that there is phenomenal overlap between models. Yep. I think that when we talk about CBT, we're moving into the area of managed care and we're moving into insurance factors. How much will be paid for somebody to have so many none. sessions? That Not in this country, none. No, my concern, my concern is that we are beginning to look at cost effectiveness, which of course we have to, we have to look at cost effectiveness, but... If we identify one model, which is happening, as being more cost effective than another, then we are denying people the opportunity to engage with the model and or the therapist with whom they it fits and who can, you know, alleviate the most situation. See, I, di I disagree. Leslie. I know people yeah. in the UK. Now, what happens is in the UK, they have something called the National Institute of Clinical Health and Excellence. We call it yes. NICE, the NICE guidelines. And I actually had the pleasure of, of speaking to David Veal, one of the big OCD uh, people in the UK, and he was on the committee that put together the NICE guidelines for body dysmorphic disorder and OCD. And it took a couple years. They review all the research, the good, the bad, the ugly. And then they come up with guidelines. 
That's all they are. They are guidelines. So if you're in um, the NHS and you don't have money and you can't go to private therapy, and I do know somebody who went to psychoanalysis for her depression and loved it and really, really responded. Um, But there are other people who don't have those funds. And so because it's recommended by the NICE guidelines, then it's paid for by the NHS. But I want to come back to something, you know, um, about behaviorism. And, and everybody here is talking about the cognitive stuff. We're forgetting about the actions, the behaviorism. And there's research from 2008 that says we need to really overlearn our new behaviors. And when I read this research recently, kind of made me reevaluate how I work as a therapist. And I think, you know, clients are like, look, I got the hang of this. It's not that I really live it. I got the hang of it and I kind of have a good feel for it. And we're all, everybody's like, great, great, great. Finish therapy. Off you go. And therefore, I think that's contributing to the relapse rate because I know with myself, I'm working with people who would have anxiety disorders, um, other things, depression, and they've been in this mode for years. And those are the entrenched behaviors. Those are the neural pathways that are well um, formed. And so we need to really help our clients overlearn this stuff in order to prevent the relapse. So Coleman is the psychoanalyst in the room. So <laughs> so which do you think um, is more effective? The governments love the CBT. It's cost effective. Is that pushing out the psychoanalysts unfairly? Not necessarily. I, I mean, I think you, you have to credit healthcare politics with following research. And Leslie's right in that. It, and CBT is the most researched mechanism of delivery that there is. That's uh, a shame. I wish the other therapies Yeah, yeah and, and the other therapies yes. need to kind of, you know, I suppose, do that more, I guess. Um, but again, it, it comes down to the individual person. And I really think it comes out. And these things come in vogue. In the 60s and 70s, psychoanalysis in the States was massive and everyone was in analysis. Woody and Allen. It was, it was fabulous. <laughs> um, you know, we've, we've had but it's C- expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we've had CBT. Uh, now we have mindfulness, which mm. is the, the, the kind of... And I, I, I believe it's it's in response to culture. I think because of, and Coleman goes on about technology again, but I think because it's so mindless, that mindfulness has almost offered us something counter-cultural that offers us a time to stop and actually engage with the moment and stop getting caught up in the expectations. For anyone listening, I'm not an expert in mindfulness yeah. by any stretch, but um, th- 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 you have to kind of allow a menu of options that suit the clinical need and suit the personality of the person coming. Just on that cultural point about mindfulness, and this goes back to my neoliberal conspiracy, please forgive me. <laughs> no, that if... You know, if we are in this society where there is insecurity, you know, and all kinds of pressures and stresses that we've never had before. And if the cultural solution to that becomes mindfulness rather than changing the society, do you see anything sinister in that? Which maybe uh, I do You sometimes. seem to think I have some inroads <laughs> to this conspiracy. you get these questions. Um, no, I, I think that something gains momentum because... It's well researched. Sometimes it it suits a health political agenda. I mean, yeah. mindfulness can be delivered in group, so that's obviously something that, and it's something that people can learn. And you know, um, I mean, again, it comes down to you know what, how many psychoanalysts does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> is, it re- is it replacing um, religion? Do you think uh, is mindfulness just a, like we used to say the rosary? And you'd sit there saying your prayers, you know, and now you maybe concentrate on your breath or something. Well, we're certainly right? seeing, I suppose, a <clears throat> cultural shift in terms of spirituality and the kind of the Catholicism being mm-hmm. diluted right the way through, and a rise in mindfulness, which is, I, I, I'm, is it borrowed from a kind of? It's it's kind of Buddhist, Buddhist. Buddhist. yeah, it, but in it origin, is in origin, yes. but it is not Buddhist. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I think that distinction needs yeah. to be made. Yeah, but the meditation. Actually, I have to take one quick break. We come back. Um, we're going to be talking about celebrities and gender. Talking point on News Talk one hundred six to one hundred eight.
Welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the politics of depression this morning. And in studio with me, Dr. Mary Murray, clinical psychologist. Coleman Nocter is a child psychotherapist in St. Patrick's. And Leslie Shoemaker is a counselling psychologist. Now, are women far more likely to be prescribed anti-anxiety meds like Xanax or an SSRI or something like that rather than men. No, Coleman, have you no. come across that? I mean, I, I think I think it comes down to help-seeking behaviours. And yes. again, women traditionally are better help-seekers in terms of that rather than men. And again, if you go down to taking a medicine for your panic attacks or taking a medicine for your depression, there may be a, a kind of a, an ethos in men that that's a sign of weakness and maybe they might be reticent about starting those medicines. But I think it's more a kind of a cultural response to the person, the gender of the person being offered that than it being any sort of, again, conspiracy that we're <laughs> yeah. medicating more women than men. But but I think what I think what is different, and I think this is one thing that is identifiable, is that we're now better help seekers or we're certainly trying to promote to get rid of stigma around mental health so, so that people seek help better. But we need to match that with a service that offers the, 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 the seeking, the help that people seek. Yeah. Actually, um, Mary, I'll yes. go back to you just yes. on that yes. Um, yes. stigma. Now, there are two things about stigma. One is we've seen this thing of um, celebrities talking about their depression and the idea is, of course, that they're raising awareness. All right. Yes. Now, yes. but there was a woman talking to Ryan Tuberty, um at the beginning of the week, Neve, oh, yes. and mm-hmm. she uh, was covered in the Irish Independent as well. And she was saying, now she praised Bressy, she praised Olivia O'Leary, she praised people like that for talking about it, but she said sometimes it can actually make her feel worse. You, she said you can feel so much worse when you see those people and you think, well, none of that works for me. I'm still here and I'm still depressed. Or you could look at Catherine Zeta Jones and say, well, she's beautiful, she's rich, it's all right for her. What do you think the effect of those celebrity confessions are on people who are actually depressed? I think that it has been wonderful that people like Bressy have come out and and others and they have, you know, certainly helped to reduce stigma. They have certainly opened the doors that say anybody, no matter what, can become depressed, can be unable to cope. And I think they normalise the human misery, which we were talking about, and they normalise the fact that you can become ill in any way, and that includes you can have mental ill health. I mean, I on the other hand, I do understand that if you're sitting in some, you know, apartment on your own, you've been miserable for years, and somebody who looks wonderful and speaks fantastically and has a fantastic life and a retinue of people around them is speaking about their depression, and you're thinking... You haven't got a clue. And and also, let's be clear about it. It would be far easier to be depressed in luxury and, you know, surrounded than alone and miserable and in penury. So there, I mean, I think both points are valid. For me, I think, you know, people like Bresley coming out, particularly big men who are prepared to say, because real men will say, I'm depressed. That has altered things enormously. Now, Leslie, for the families or friends of someone who's depressed, I've wondered about this too, because you might look at somebody being interviewed on The Late Late Show or whatever, and it's really interesting. Don't want to use the word entertaining, you know, but we're engaged by it. But that's quite different from looking at your family member who's just been in a really bad mood for a long time. And that sometimes depression isn't just laying there in bed, not able to get out of it, but can manifest itself as anger. 
And very it's, much so. So very different situation to deal with it when it's someone beside you and not on the telly. Agreed. And, and then the other difficulty is, and I've seen this before, I recently had a client um, whose brother came to the session. He really wanted to meet me. That's great. I'm all for it. I love bringing in family. And he said, um, when my sister does blah, 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 I told her to stop. It's just the OCD. And I went, whoa. No, 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 no. That's not what the book is about. So we, family members, I'm so about. Families need to psychoeducate themselves. Learn everything you can about it. Read the books directly related to family members for whatever the disorder is, you know, and, and understand that. So then you can go to the person and ask them informed questions. You can discuss with them, what do you want? What do, what do I do that perhaps drives you up the wall? Negotiate. Like, I really do think something that we as a society here in terms of our field do not do well. It, no, you do, Coleman, because you're working with kids. I firmly believe bring in family members into my sessions because they are just as impacted as other people. And so, Coman, I'll give you the final word on that, that so much of these discussions are about telling the depressed person what to do. But often it is the people around them who maybe don't recognize it as depression because it doesn't look like the public image of what depression is. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that, again, depression expresses itself so differently. I mean, it could be a really irritable, hostile teenage boy who's actually really unhappy, but just coming across as really disgruntled. And I think, for me, just to mention the, the issues around the, the Brezies and celebrities, and I think they, they've done wonderful work in terms of help-seeking, opening a conversation, etc. But it, again, it, depending on where you're at in that spectrum of illness, you know, to someone who's maybe t- feeling down in the early stages of depression, seeing that Brezzy and directs them to help is wonderful that they can get that help. But if you've really struggled, the idea of getting up and running and doing an, an Ironman competition if you haven't been able to get out of bed might feel different and again that's not a, a, a having a go at that but it's we have to stop seeing mental illness and mental health as a one dimensional thing it is a com- whole spectrum of things and the lens with which where you're on in that spectrum spectrum will see it'll affect how you seek help how you understand help what therapy you want and how effective it is whether you need medicines or not so we need to kind of broaden it as to a whole spectrum of of difficulties rather than trying to lump it into one because it's just unfortunately not that simple Okay well that is our final word today thanks a million Coleman Noctor Leslie Shoemaker and Mary Murray um, Aoife Breen produced and thank you for listening Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.